Welcome to this episode of WikiWalks, a short podcast devoted to some of the more intriguing and, huh, who knew, articles that you can run across in the weird world of Wikipedia. I'm your host, Chris Grismer. Well, hello, everybody. I realize it's, <laughs> it's been a minute. I'm not dead. I'm here. I'm alive. Well, let's learn about somebody who's not alive. Hopefully we can get a few more of these uh, episodes out, like back in the days of yore. I'm optimistic. I think we'll, we'll get it. So that said, the other day, I was watching the season finale of Better Call Saul, and one of the characters says this. Screw the money. You did it for fun. You get off on it. You're, you're like Leopold and Loeb, two sociopaths. All right, that's enough. And I thought to myself, wait, who are Leopold and Loeb? It feels like something that I should know something about. But I honestly had no idea, so I had to go digging, and I uh, got on the old Wikipedia there, and it was a huge deal, and certainly something that I should have known about, but now I will take what I have learned about these two and pass it on to you, dear faithful listener. This was the OG trial of the century. So it was the 1920s, Chicago, and there were two young fellas, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. So both of these guys were brilliant young students from extremely wealthy families. And while Leopold was a uh, <laughs> a quirky-looking gent with a unibrow that kind of looked like a fuzzy pool cue, Loeb was a dashing sort of guy who clearly had a bright future ahead of him. He was also the youngest grad ever from the University of Michigan at 17. So these guys were obviously of super high pedigree. So these two academics eventually became friends, and during their time at the University of Chicago, they both discovered that they had a mutual interest in grisly crimes. Like some people like Pickleball, others like Canasta, these two bonded over the idea of homicide and dismemberment. So, you know, different strokes and all that. So they also had a deep, unrelenting obsession with Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of the supermen, or Ubermensch, interpreting them as transcendent individuals possessing extraordinary and unusual capabilities, whose superior intellects allowed them to rise above the laws and rules that bound the unimportant average populace. So Leopold believed that he and Loeb were such individuals, and as such, by his interpretation of Nietzsche's doctrines, they were not bound by any of society's normal ethics or rules. In a letter to Loeb, Leopold wrote, a superman is, on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything he may do. Well, that sounds awfully convenient. These bros were obviously not lacking in self-confidence. They first dabbled in petty theft and vandalism, but obviously that did not fully wet their whistle, and the need for escalation grew. Breaking into a fraternity house at the University of Michigan, they stole pen knives, a camera, a typewriter that they later used to type ransom notes, and emboldened, they progressed to a series of more serious crimes, including arson, but no one really seemed to notice. So disappointed with the absence of media coverage for their crimes. So, you know, obviously we blame social media now, but back in the day, these people wanted to get famous too through the papers. So they decided to plan and execute a sensational, perfect crime that would garner public attention and confirm their status as supermen. So our intrepid villains, who are only 19 and 18 at this time, decided, you know what? Kidnapping and murdering a young boy, that's the ticket. I remember playing hooky my senior year and thought that was riding the razor's edge, but no. Killing and dismembering a local youth, that is ratcheting up the hijinks to 11. 
Leopold claimed that murder was an acceptable act for Superman to commit if the deed gave him pleasure. Morality did not apply in such a case. <laughs> okay, dude. Leopold had no objection to Loeb's plan to kidnap a child. They spent long hours together that winter discussing the crime, planning its details. They decided upon a $10,000 ransom, but how would they obtain it? After much debate, they came up with a plan that they thought was foolproof. They would direct the victim's father to throw a packet containing the money from the train that traveled south of Chicago along the elevated tracks west of Lake Michigan. You know, the L. They would be waiting below in a car, and as soon as the ransom hit the ground, they would scoop it up and make good their escape. So, on May 21, 1924, these two ne'er-do-wells drove around Chicago looking for a kid to steal and murder, and they settled on 14-year-old Bobby Franks, who was, coincidentally, Loeb's second cousin, and often played tennis at his house during the week. Ugh. Using an automobile that Leopold rented under the name Morton D. Ballard, they offered Franks a ride as he walked home from school. Franks initially refused because his destination was like two blocks away, so why would he get in their car? But Loeb persuaded him to enter the car to talk about a tennis racket that he'd been using. Ugh, classic. Leopold was behind the wheel of the car while Loeb sat in the back seat with a taped-up chisel. Loeb then struck Franks, who was sitting in the front of him in the passenger seat several times in the head with the chisel, then dragged him into the back seat and gagged him, where he then died. Ugh. With the body on the floorboard, out of view... The two guys drove to their predetermined dumping grounds near Hammond, Indiana, Wolf Lake specifically, about 25 miles south of Chicago, and at nightfall, they removed and discarded Bobby's clothes, then concealed the body in a culvert along the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks, next time you play Monopoly, let that one sink in, north of the lake. To obscure the body's identity, they then poured hydrochloric acid on his face and genitals to disguise the fact that he'd been circumcised. These guys had thought of everything. Textbook premeditation to the nth degree here. By the time the two men returned to Chicago, word had already spread that Franks was missing. Leopold called Franks' mother, identified himself as George Johnson, and told her that Franks had been kidnapped. Instructions for delivering the ransom would follow. After mailing the typed ransom note and burning their blood-stained clothing, then cleaning the bloodstains from the rented vehicle's upholstery, they spent the remainder of the evening playing cards. Nothing like a post-bludgeoning game of pinochle to really take the edge off. Chicago police launched an intensive investigation. Rewards were offered for information. While Loeb went about his daily routine quietly, Leopold spoke freely to police and reporters, offering theories to anyone who would listen. He even told one detective, if I were to murder anybody, it would probably be just a cocky little SOB like Bobby Franks. Gah, so stupid. It's like an OJ, like, if I had done it, dumb. Police found a pair of eyeglasses near the body, however. Although common in prescription and frame, they were fitted with an unusual hinge purchased by only three customers in Chicago, one of whom was Leopold. <laughs> what a scamp. When questioned, Leopold offered the possibility that his glasses might have been dropped out of his pocket during a bird-watching trip the previous weekend. You know, at the normal dumping grounds of a dead body? Sure great place to catch birds. They asserted that on the night of the murder, they had picked up two women in Chicago using Leopold's car, then dropped them off sometime later at a golf course without learning their last names. Ah, we can't find them. Their alibi was exposed as a complete lie when Leopold's chauffeur told police that he was repairing Leopold's car while the two men claimed to be using it. The chauffeur's wife confirmed that the car was parked in Leopold's garage on the night of the murder, and then the destroyed ransom note typewriter was discovered from the Jackson Park Lagoon on June 7th. 
Loeb confessed first. He asserted that Leopold had planned everything and he had killed Franks in the backseat of the car while Loeb drove. Leopold's confession followed swiftly thereafter, but he insisted that he was the driver and Loeb was the murderer. Both Leopold and Loeb admitted that they were driven by their thrill-seeking Ubermensch delusions and their aspiration to commit a perfect crime. Neither claimed to have looked forward to the killing, but Leopold admitted interest in learning what it would feel like to be a murderer. And he was disappointed to note that he pretty much just felt the same as ever. <laughs> we have all been there, haven't we? The ensuing trial was obviously a media circus. Loeb's family hired the renowned criminal defense attorney Clarence Darrow of the Scopes Monkey Trial fame to lead the defense team. It was rumored that Darrow was paid $1 million for his services, but he was actually paid $70,000, although that is equivalent to $1.1 million in 2022 dollars. Darrow took the case because he was a staunch opponent of capital punishment. While it was generally assumed that the men's defense would be based on a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, Darrow, however, concluded that a jury trial would almost certainly end in conviction and the death penalty, so he entered a plea of guilty, said, yep, they did it, hoping to convince Cook County Circuit Court Judge John R. Caverly to oppose sentences of life imprisonment instead. Darrow then gave a 12-hour-long speech, one that has been discussed as the finest closing argument in legal history, trying to convince the judge and jury to spare the boys their life and remand them into custody for the duration of their lives rather than send them to the gallows. I am pleading for the future. I am pleading for a time when hatred and cruelty will not control the hearts of men, when we can learn by reason and judgment and understanding and faith that all life is worth saving, and that mercy is the highest attribute of man. The judge was persuaded, but he explained in his ruling that his decision was based primarily on precedent and the youth of the accused. Youths, youths. On September 10, 1924, he sentenced both Leopold and Loeb to life imprisonment for the murder and an additional 99 years for the kidnapping. Leopold and Loeb initially were held at Joliet Prison. Although they were kept apart as much as possible, the two managed to maintain their friendship. Leopold was transferred to Stateville Penitentiary in 1931, and Loeb was later transferred there as well. Once reunited, the two expanded the prison school system, adding a high school and junior college curriculum. In 1936, however, Loeb was attacked by a fellow inmate with a razor blade in the shower and died later that day. That inmate said Loeb attacked him but he was found completely unharmed while Loeb had been cut 50 times, many from behind. So this was obviously suggesting these were defensive wounds. After 33 years and numerous unsuccessful petitions, Leopold, however, was paroled in March 1958 and moved to Puerto Rico and became a leprosy researcher, something I know that's always been very high on my personal bucket list. He eventually died at the age of 66 from diabetes-related heart failure in 1971. And thus concludes the story of Leopold and Loeb, the trial of the century before O.J., and the men who callously thought themselves to be supermen, only to find out they would get super-caught. <laughs> <laughs> 